This morning's reading is taken from Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Thank you, Sally. Please keep your Bibles uh, open. Matthew chapter 9. Um, and just uh, as, as we turn there, um, just to, to say that if uh, I mentioned Mission Week, uh, if you have children of primary school age, uh, we're looking to run uh, basically a, a kind of Bible uh, a day, a day Bible club on the Tuesday to Friday of the first week of the Easter holidays. So if you have kids of that age, they're more than welcome to, to come along. Uh, Sign-up details will be coming out soon. And we're also, on the evenings of Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of that week, we're also going to run something for secondary school age children as well. Um, both of those things will be here. And again, more details will come out about that soon. So um, just to let you know that's happening, and you can uh, put those dates in your diary. Uh, let me just pray for us as we come to consider God's word together. Father, we thank you that um, you speak to us uh, through your word by your spirit. Father, we pray that you would help us in these moments to come with humble and contrite hearts, that we might receive what you would say to us, that we would believe it, that we would trust it, and that you would give us the strength and the grace we need to obey it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The harvest is plentiful. The workers, the laborers, are few. In recent generations in Scotland, in air, the gospel need has never been greater. The gospel workers have never been fewer. Many people are harassed and helpless. Many do not have even a gospel witness in their life. This morning, these verses compel us, each one of us here, and guide us with how we are to respond to that reality, to the reality that in recent generations, in Scotland and in air, the need has never been greater and the workers have never been fewer. I'm sure you feel that as a Christian. Matthew 9 presents us with an urgent yet optimistic way forward for how we're to help helpless people and point them to Jesus. This church, Harvest Air, was started out of a deep conviction and desire that more workers were needed, that more shepherds were needed to sow the seed of the gospel and to spiritually care for and nourish people who are harassed and helpless. Our very name expresses the reality of these verses the heart behind these verses. What we'll see in these verses is not only what we all need to do as people, what we all need as followers of Jesus, but we'll also see what we're called to do for other people. 
What we'll encounter this morning is no small thing. Let me just tell you that up front. These verses are no small thing. This is no ordinary set of verses that we encounter here this morning. These are seismic, life-shaping Bible verses in front of us this morning. I hope you see that. If you don't see that this morning, you walk away from that and don't see how these verses are seismic and life-shaping, then I'm not sure you've heard these verses this morning. These are life-changing verses. These are verses which have been used by the Lord significantly in my life. The reason, part of significantly the reason I'm standing you in front of you this morning, someone with an ulcer accent, is because of these verses. These verses are seismic and life-shaping. How are you going to respond? How are we going to respond? Well, we see that we're going to be called to go and to be sent out in the next few weeks, but the main thing we're to start with is prayer. Matthew 9.38 Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's the main application we get from this morning. We're going to see next week, as I say, we're going to see, see that we're going to be called to go. We're going to be sent out, but we start with prayer. First thing we see then from these voice, verses is this. For people to respond to Jesus in faith, we must firstly proclaim the gospel. And the reason we're talking about faith here is because last week we thought about that uh, two, two responses to the gospel. The response of faith or unbelief. If we want to see people come to faith, verses 35 to 38 tell us how we're going to see that happen. The first thing being proclaiming the gospel. Verse 35, if you see, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So those verses are really a summary of Jesus' ministry here, is teaching, preaching, and healing. We see a similar statement in Matthew 4.23. It'll be up on the screen for you. Almost identical, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So we see these two bookends, these two statement, summary statements of Jesus' ministry. At the heart of that ministry was preaching and proclamation of the gospel. At the heart of that ministry was preaching and proclamation of the gospel. When you think about Jesus, what do you think about him doing? For him, his priority, among other things, was the proclamation, was the heralding of his arrival and of the kingdom of God. Matthew 4.17, we see that in his kind of introductory or defining words about what his ministry was going to be. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in Mark 1, chapter 38, uh, all these people are coming to him because he's doing all these miracles and his disciples are saying to him, look at all of this need. And then Jesus says in Mark 1, 38, let us go on to the next towns. Why? That I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. What is it that Jesus is proclaiming? Verse 35 tells us he is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. You might be familiar with the gospel, but what does it mean, the gospel of the kingdom? Well, the word for gospel uh, in Matthew is used only four times. Each time it's alongside that phrase, of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is good news. It's good news about the long-awaited arrival of God's king and the establishment of his kingdom, of his heavenly kingdom on earth. That kingdom has come in Jesus. In the person of Jesus, that kingdom has arrived and is being built and is present through the lives of kingdom citizens, believers in Jesus, who, who gather in kingdom outposts that we call the local church. You want to see the kingdom? 
Look at the lives of believers and look at the local church. That's what Jesus is establishing. So, so the gospel of the kingdom is the good news of the coming of a king and his kingdom and all the benefits and promises that flow from that kingdom. Kingdom which is established now, but will one day come in all its fullness when Jesus returns. The question becomes, how do we know that king? How do we enter into that kingdom? And then here we get to the very heart of the gospel of the kingdom. Perhaps a helpful way to think about it is this. Uh, Greg Gilbert in his book, What is the Gospel?, talks about the wide-angle lens of the gospel and the zoom lens of the gospel. The wide-angle lens of the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. It's the restoration and reconciliation of the whole world under God's righteous rule and reign. It's the new heavens and the earth. It's all the benefits and promises that come from that. A pain-free future, resurrected bodies, face-to-face with Jesus for eternity. But then the zoom lens of the gospel is what we might call the gospel of the cross. We have the gospel of the kingdom, but at the heart of that is the gospel of the cross. It's the atonement. It's the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins, which Jesus has been highlighting particularly in the story of the paralytic in Matthew chapter 9. It's the death of Christ in our place for our sin. It's what we see in places like 1 Corinthians 15. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It's what we see as well in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you, On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the heart of the gospel. Atonement, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God. It's the good news that begins with God, who is a loving creator of all things. He is perfectly holy, worthy of all worship, and he will punish sin. God created us all, man. He created man upright. Yet all people, though created good, have become sinful by nature. From birth, we are all alienated from God, hostile to God and subject to the wrath of God. But then steps Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, who lived a life we can never live, willingly died on the cross to bear God's wrath in the place of those who would believe in him and rose from their grave in order to give us eternal life. What's our response to that? God calls everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and trust in Christ in order to be saved. We see that call to repentance from Jesus himself. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the question is this morning, have you responded to that? Have you responded to Jesus' proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in him? Do you believe that with all of your heart? If you do, rejoice. You're a kingdom citizen. Jesus is your king. You have all the benefits of his work on the cross. If you haven't believed in that, today is the day. We'd love to walk you through that and help you come to Jesus. How might we summarize then the gospel of the kingdom that we are to proclaim? Well, Matthew himself provides us with a definition between those two bookends, between chapter 423 and chapter 935 we see this morning. The two bookends which describe Jesus' ministry of teaching, preaching, and healing. It's a teaching and proclamation we see in Matthew 5 to 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the compassionate healing we've seen in Matthew 8 to 9. 
It's the full definition of the gospel of the kingdom. Jonathan Pennington, an author, says this, Matthew provides for us a full-orbed and unmistakable definition of the gospel of about the kingdom. It's the message in reality that God's kingship or reign has now come in Jesus. Jesus teaches us what about what this here-to-yet-be kingdom is like, both regarding the virtue and character of its disciples and the kind of healing and restoration that it brings. It's a big gospel. If you read chapters 5 to 9, it's a big gospel. It's a big call, but it's big news. It's good news. We're called to live in light of Jesus' commands, Matthew 5 to 7, and we enjoy the benefits of all the promises of future restoration and healing in Matthew 8 to 9. Let me just emphasize, again, that though healing and restoration from disease and affliction is only promised in the age to come, that Jesus' ministry is defined partly by being healing every disease and every affliction. It reminds us, even now, in the disease and the affliction and suffering that we go through, Jesus cares about that. Jesus sees that. J.C. Ryle says about this verse that Jesus' ministry is defined by healing every disease and affliction. He says this, there is much comfort to be drawn from this fact. We are each dwelling in a poor, frail body. We never know how much suffering we may have to watch as we sit beside the bedsides of beloved relatives and friends. We never know what racking complaint we ourselves may have to submit to before we lie down and die. But let us arm ourselves with the precious thought that Jesus is specially fitted to be the sick man's friend. That great high priest to whom we must apply for pardon and peace with God is eminently qualified to sympathize with our aching body, as well as to heal our ailing conscience. He looks with pity on the diseased, and in a world that sometimes and often cares little for the sick, the Lord Jesus cares especially for the sick. He not only saves us, he cares about us. And one day we will be fully restored and healed when the kingdom comes in all its fullness. So, what does this mean for us? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Gospel proclamation, like it was in Jesus' ministry, must be the heart of our ministry. Gospel proclamation must be our priority. Yes, we still seek to love our neighbor, to do good works, to to particularly help those who are helpless and poor and vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, the poor, but, but we must ensure that that's part of a wider and bigger priority to bring the good news and the gospel of the kingdom to people's ears and hearts and lives. To bring things of eternal consequence to their souls. Where are we to do that? Well, everywhere we can. Jesus did it throughout all the villages and cities. We do it here particularly because this is where God's gathered us and where God's called us but we do it everywhere we can. We must also make sure that as we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, that we make repentance for the forgiveness of sins, the heart of that good news, the heart of that message. We fail to do that. We don't bring good news. We also must make sure that we give the four-point gospel presentation, yes, but don't stop there. We have to show how the gospel applies to all of our lives. We have to give them all of Jesus' commandments. That's what he calls us to do, isn't it? When people respond in faith, when they come to faith, we then need to teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded them. The Sermon on the Mount. All of his commandments. We must teach those who follow Jesus and take personal responsibility to be a people who live a life of repentance and faith. 
not just a one-off prayer. So this is our content. This is our call. These are our convictions. This is the good news that we are to proclaim. This is to be the heart of our ministry. But what is to be our motivation? Okay, that's a big call. That's a big job. How are we going to be motivated? What's to be our posture and our motivation as we make gospel proclamation our priority? Well, alongside gospel content and proclamation and conviction, there must be, verse 36, there must be, verse 36, compassion. That's what we see next. For people to respond to Jesus in faith, we must proclaim the gospel and we must also have compassion. Look down at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See the condition of the crowd. They're harassed. They're faint. They're weary. They're exhausted. They've lost heart because in this context, particularly, they've been bullied and oppressed by those who were supposed to care for them. They're harassed and they're helpless. They're cast down. They feel unable and they are unable to help themselves. Perhaps that describes you this morning. Perhaps that's how you feel, harassed, helpless, weary, exhausted, cast down. We know, don't we, that though there's many joyful things in life, our experience as fallen humans living in a fallen world means that often it is described though as harassed and helpless. That also appears for people who applies for people who appear to have it all sorted. Just because people look like they've got it all sorted doesn't mean that behind the scenes they aren't harassed and helpless. That goes for you if you think you've got it all sorted. Without Jesus, we aren't sorted. For whatever reason, we might feel harassed or helpless. How does Jesus look upon us? How does Jesus respond to us? With compassion. In our harassed and helpless state, Jesus is not callous towards us. He moves towards us with pity and compassion. The word for compassion there is not just some kind of surface level emotion. Oh, they look like they're having a hard time. No, it's, it's a word which described it from his very gut, from the deepest part of him, from his heart, he feels compassion. And we've seen time and again in Matthew 8 to 9 that he, his compassion is a compassion which compels him to move towards people in their harassed state and their helpless state. He moves towards them. He, he touches them. He shows compassion to them. In, the, in their harassed and helpless, sinful, diseased, dying, oppressed state, Jesus moves towards them and so he does towards us. So be assured this morning of Jesus' compassion towards you. A passion we can still know deeply even in his absence through the presence of his spirit. And for us who are Christians, then the question becomes, do we show that same compassion to those around us? Do we look around at those who are in our lives with compassion? Do we long? Are we moved? Do we pity those who don't know Jesus and who are harassed and helpless? It's all too easy, isn't it? To become hardened towards those around us. Friends, families, neighbors, colleagues, people we walk past on the street, politicians, whoever it might be. It's all too easy to become hardened and self-focused. It's all too easy to look down our noses self-righteously, judgmentally, 
disapprovingly, to be irritated, irritated by people, to be apathetic, to make assumptions. Our default, if we're honest, is to be cynical, critical, and callous. Instead, we must be people of compassion. We must be people of compassion. If we want to see people come to faith, if we want people, if we want people to, if we want people to give us a hearing for the gospel, we need not just gospel conviction or content or confidence. We need gospel compassion. We need gospel compassion. Often we think, don't we, when it comes to evangelism and talking about Jesus and sharing the good news, often we think that the reason we would don't do that more, even though we'd like to, is because of fear. And that's true. That's a big factor. We fear what people will think of us. We fear how they'll respond to us. But what Matthew 9.36 reveals to us, and perhaps we don't want to admit it, is that a significant reason we don't tell more people more about Jesus is because we are not motivated or moved by compassion towards them. Compassion turns sharing the gospel into something we have to do and feel guilty for not doing into something we get to do. Without compassion, our bent will not be towards moving to people. It will be to stay in our own little bubbles. We will not spend ourselves and our time and our energy spreading the gospel if we don't care if we don't actually have compassion for the people we long to see come to know Jesus. Without that compassion, we'll also become callous towards the people sitting in the chair beside you. We'll become critical, cynical. We need that compassion within here, not just out there. Otherwise, we stop moving towards one another and we stop caring for one another. How then, okay, how then do we cultivate that compassion? I want to feel that way. I want to care about people, both within this church and outside these walls. How do we cultivate that compassion? It starts by looking to Jesus, by meditating on the compassion he's shown towards us, by looking at people through the lens of Jesus, considering how he would think about them and move towards them and treat them. It involves looking. It'd be easy to overlook that simple application, but it involves lifting our head from our own circumstances, even hard circumstances, and looking at other people, looking at other people's lives, listening to other people, asking them how they can be helped, asking them about what's going on in their life, taking notice, caring. So maybe we should ask ourselves candidly this morning, how much do we actually know in this room even? Let's start with that. How much do we actually know about one another's joys and sorrows? Not in a prying way or a gossiping way, in a compassionate way? How much do we actually know about one another's joys and sorrows? How much do we take time to listen and move towards one another instead of being caught up only with our own concerns? I'm encouraged by how many people ask me that question. Let's keep doing that. And if you feel you're not doing that well, grow in that. Be bold and walk across the room and, and show compassion and get to know one another. And also keep in mind as we look around this room and as we look around our world, Keep in mind that we are all sinners saved by grace. Yes, people are responsible for their sin. Yes, we don't minimize sin, but remember how God loved us while we were still sinners. Consider his compassion towards us even when we were in that state. 
Consider how, Christian or not, we all live in a world affected by sin, where we're reeling from its effects. Consider the souls of those without Christ and how they're enslaved to sin, how they probably, part of them longs to be freed from the things they're trapped in, even if they're responsible for them. Consider that even though people can sin in significant ways, there are also people who have likely been sinned against. Let's strive to have compassion. Let's offer hope. Another key way to cultivate compassion is to pray for people. It's very hard to have a hard heart for someone when you pray for them. Praying for those who don't know Jesus is one of the best ways our hearts will soften towards them. And finally, put on compassion. Colossians 3.12, which will be up on the screen for you, says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You have to choose. We have to choose to put it on. Those gospel clothes, each morning we have to make the decision to keep putting them on, to not choose cynicism and critical nature, but to put on compassionate hearts. Question becomes, why were these people harassed and helpless? Why was Jesus particularly moved with compassion towards them? Because he says they were like sheep without a shepherd. He's drawing on Ezekiel 34 there and implying that these people's spiritual condition reflected the failure of those who were supposed to be their spiritual shepherds. Ezekiel 34 tells us that the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. With force and harshness you have ruled them, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. But what does God promise in Ezekiel 4, and what does he ultimately fulfill in Jesus? Ezekiel 34, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. Verse 23 of that chapter says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Who is that shepherd? It's Jesus. The son of David. Jesus is the one now who comes and shepherds his people Israel, who comes and shepherds us. In our harassed and helpless state, he comes and seeks us. He comes and gathers us. He comes and feeds us. He comes and strengthens us. And he comes to protect us. You don't need to be harassed and helpless. You can have Jesus as your good shepherd. The house that we grew up in, um, I may have shared this before, but uh, a number of years ago, we were standing there. I looked out the bedroom window one morning. Her house is surrounded by fields, and the sheep had gotten uh, through the fence in the field and all over her front garden. And that's what sheep do by nature. They scatter without direction, without help, without a shepherd. They scatter, they become helpless, they get entangled in the fence, they become harassed. What you and I need most in life, and what this verse tells us we need, what we need most in our harassed and helpless state is a good shepherd. Do you have one? Do you know Jesus? Is it any wonder that Psalm 23 is so popular and comforting to so many people? Because we long for that spiritual care and nourishment in our lives. And the good news is that in Jesus we can have that. We can know that shepherding care as we listen to his voice in scripture as we come to him in prayer and most closely, closely through the, the continual presence of his spirit. 
And in his grace, he's also given us shepherds within the life of the church, elders. First Peter 5 talks about this. In his grace, in his absence, physical absence, he gifts the church with elders, with shepherds, who are to shepherd the flock of God and feed them his words. Being a member of this church, of a local church, means you get to enjoy that shepherding care. And not just from elders, but from every member who seeks to care for one another and help one another in difficult times. If you don't know that by being part of a local church, what's stopping you? Come to Jesus, the good shepherd, and experience his shepherding care through the life of the local church. So as we think about these harassed and helpless crowd, as we look around our, our own church, our own town, our own lives, so many needs, so many people who are harassed and helpless, question becomes, where do we even start? Verse 37 to 38 tells us we start with prayer. That's the third thing we see together. For people to respond to Jesus in faith, we must proclaim the gospel, we must have compassion, and we must start with prayer. If you look down at those verses, 37 to 38, and he said to the disciples, so he sees the crowd, he sees all these harassed and helpless people, and he turns to his disciples, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The picture here, of course, is of, is of a huge field of crop. Acres and acres and acres ready to be harvested. The problem, there's not enough workers. The harvest is plentiful. It's describing the fact that it's ripe. It, there's an opportunity what is the opportunity? The harvest is plentiful. It's communicating that there's an opportunity and there's a ripeness in that there are many people ready to receive the gospel. Is that how we view our time? Is that how we view our nation? It's so easy, isn't it, to become discouraged, to become cynical, and to lack faith. But Matthew 9, 38 tells us that the harvest is plentiful. People want to hear about Jesus. Yes, there will be those who respond with unbelief and will respond with hatred. We're going to see that over the next two weeks. Loved ones, do not underestimate the rightness of people out there ready to hear and receive the good news of Jesus. You talk to enough people, you will realize that not every person hates God. Not every person hates Jesus. Many people long to know the shepherding care of Jesus. There's an opportunity then when it comes to our town, when it comes to our counties, our nation, our world, when it comes to the task we've been given, Matthew 9.38 tells us we should be optimistic as we give ourselves to the ministry of gospel proclamation. But there's a lot of work to be done. The problem is the workers are few. There's an urgent need. There's this great opportunity. There's this great harvest waiting to be, to be harvested, but the workers are few. What do we do? How do, how do we even begin to make a dent in this plentiful harvest? We pray. We pray earnestly. That means we pray without ceasing. We pray constantly. We pray dependently. We pray individually. We pray as a church. Matthew 9.38 tells us that one of the most important things, the, the most important thing we'll ever do is pray. Come before the Lord of the harvest and say, we need more workers. And those of us who are already working, strengthen us to keep going with this mission. 
with this task to proclaim the gospel to shepherd those who are harassed and helpless. Pray earnestly. I'm encouraged by how I see that happening in the life of our church. Let me urge those of you who have given yourself to that both individually and within the church to keep going, to keep enduring. For those who don't do that regularly, let me encourage you to to gather in those times, the Sunday morning at 10 o'clock in that room. What's stopping you from coming half an hour earlier to pray earnestly for the Lord to save people and to change people in our time on Sunday? What's stopping you from coming on on a Wednesday night or in small groups, whatever it might be? Yes, there's reasons at times that you can't make those things, but we need to pray. We need to pray earnestly, urgently. The need is vast. Do you see that? The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. We need to be people who pray. We long for your prayers. You want to grow in your compassion? You want to see this church grow? You want to see people saved? First thing we need to do, pray. We must consider who it is we're praying to. Do you see what verse 38 says? We're praying to the Lord of the harvest. Isn't that good news? That there's someone in charge of the harvest. That it's not all down to us. We pray to the Lord of the harvest. It's his harvest. He is Lord over it. He is in control of it. There's our confidence. There's our assurance in the face of a huge task. Ultimately, he's the one who's at work. Ultimately, it's by his spirit, through his word, yes, through us. But ultimately, he's the one at work. That should actually make us pray more, shouldn't it? Because we know that because he's in control of it, he can do something about it through us. Our prayers are not aimless. What is it we're praying for? We're praying for laborers. We're praying for workers. We're praying for people who will proclaim the gospel, motivate it by compassion, and then shepherd. It's not just a prayer, by the way, for elders, for pastors, or for missionaries. That's how you read this verse. That's not what it's about. It's a prayer for all of us. We're all called, Ephesians 4, to the work of ministry. We're all called to the work of gospel proclamation in this harvest field, in Ayrshire, South Ayrshire, East Ayrshire, wherever it is you live. What chapter 10 will present us with over the next few weeks, buckle up, is are you willing to be the answer to your own prayer? Are you going to go? Are you going to obey the call to be sent, no matter the cost? So let's consider the amazing opportunity that's in front of us here. Let's consider the the urgent need for laborers. Let's humbly and confidently be reminded that God is the Lord of the harvest. Let's get to work in our own corners of the harvest field, wherever that is, your workplace, your neighborhood, your school, whatever it might be. Let's get to work in the church. There's a harvest in this room. Let's get to work in here. Consider how you can labor amongst us. And we're so grateful for how you already do. And it's labor we're called to. It involves work. Expect to be tired. But in a gospel way. In a good way. In a way that remembers who it is you're working for and what it is we're working towards. Work looks different for different people, different abilities, different stages in life. But Matthew 88, Matthew 9, 38 is amazing because it tells us one way we can all work prayer. 
Give yourself to prayer. So are we praying this prayer? Are we praying Matthew 9.38 for this church, for all churches? I heard one person, I read somewhere this week that that Matthew 9.38 is the other Lord's prayer. It's the other prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. How often do we pray it? So as a church, let's pray. Let's pray earnestly. And as a church, we are responsible, particularly as leaders, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We need to be equipped for that work in the harvest field. That's what we are, partly what we're here to do as a church. We're here to also identify, raise up, train, send future elders, pastors, planters into this huge harvest field. People who, men and women who will labor, who will entrust the gospel to so that the harvest will be reaped not just in this generation but for generations to come. Do you want to be part of a church that does that? That's what we long to do. Lord willing, it means planting. Another agricultural image there, right? It involves planting. What's the best way to reap a a huge harvest field? Plant the church right in the middle of it. Plant the church where people will be gathered, equipped, shepherded, and cared for, and where multiple people will then scatter into the harvest field during the week. That's why we're doing what we're doing. That's what you get to be a part of. That's what hopefully we'll get to replicate in the years to come. Loved ones, this work, this prayer, this church, the harvest field, this isn't some side gig on the rest of our lives. There are thousands of people around us, in our lives, in our community, standing on the edge of eternity. This is an urgent, all-hands-on-deck, lifetime call to work. It's an optimistic work. It's a compassionate work. It's first of all a prayerful work. So let's give all we have to that. We thought about the reality that it's costly, but it's always worth it. Let's give ourselves, all of ourselves, to that work. Let's submit our lives to the Lord of the harvest, the one who by his Son and his Spirit has gathered a people to himself. Let us long to be a part of that eternal work that he's doing in our days. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let me pray that for us right now. And in a moment, uh, we'll gather around the Lord's table together um, to remember that sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. Father, we thank you first and foremost for the compassion of Jesus towards us. We thank you for how in our sin and in our misery and in our helpless and harassed state, Jesus looked upon us with compassion and by his spirit helped us to behold him by faith. Father, would you deepen our compassion for those around us? Father, we know our lives can be hard, our lives can be busy. Many things come our way, Father, but help us not to lose sight of those around us who need Jesus. Father, help us to be a church that cares for one another and nourishes one another. Help us to shepherd one another's souls. Father, help me as an elder, help me and Derek, help our other elders to shepherd this church faithfully and well. Father, help us all to keep looking to our good shepherd, Jesus. Help us to proclaim the good news about him. Father, pray for our church. Father, thank you so much for all that you have done today. 
We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the workers you brought amongst us. We thank you for the, the lives that have been changed. Father, we, we ask for more. Please give us more, Father. Give us more workers. Help us see more people changed and transformed and come to know Jesus. We pray all these things in his precious name. Amen.